This week on Writers Inc. I have heard a few times now that Eva is an unlikable character, uh, and, and that you know she's she's really being judged for not being a you know supposedly good enough mom and making decisions that are not in her children's best interest. But I mean, that was literally the point of the novel. <laughs> so I would hope that people would understand, like when I was going into the hero's journey, like this was her dark night of the soul. This was her doing battle with the Duende and the shadow. And part of that is yes, her own demons. Part of that are the cultural and social demons. Um, and you know, also she's human. And in any given crisis, like humans are going to make mistakes. That's that's what is so endearing about humans. <laughs> like we hope that we're gonna turn course and, and make the right choices in the end. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Where in the world is Jay Thorne? None of us know. None of no. us really care. He's not here. That's all that matters. <laughs> I'm thinking either prison or the zoo. Prison or the zoo. I said he's oh, literally turning right. himself into an NFT. It's probably in our Yeah, I was going to say he's probably out surfing speak. on the blockchain. That's like a real place, right? You can go hang out. Yeah, he's in the metaverse. Like, he's not coming back. <laughs> I, yeah, I have no. I really have no idea where he's. I think he told us, but I think we all ignored it. I, I think we should create or open a restaurant called Blockchain that people can Perfect. go to. Oh, uh, that, could, that could that could work. At least jail. Sh- we know jail show up. Chopping that. Blockchain. He may skip the podcast, but he'll go to Blockchain. Yeah. <laughs> he crypto. He pro- he's probably at the zoo, like you said, like I was a couple weeks ago, but uh, probably just there by himself. So, but. Uh, Anyway, so yeah, so Jay's not here, so um, we'll just go ahead and jump into this without him. So uh, JD, let's, I guess let's start with the news. So I know uh, we have something as we're recording that's kind of breaking at this point. So Yeah, so I, I, I like purposely avoid the news in my life at this point. Like I, I, the only news I get is from Saturday Night Live, you know, like the, the news <laughs> little thing in the middle um, and the Daily Show. You know, like that's kind of it. That's all. That's all I really need. Um, but I start getting. I've got books at Harper Collins, and I started noticing in their email signature they actually put this in there. I'm just going to read it to you because um, I had no idea this was even going on. Um, it says I am a Harper Collins union worker, and we've been working without a contract since April 2022. We're pushing for better compensation, diversity protections, and union security. On November 10th, if the company doesn't agree to a fair contract with our union, we will go on strike until management delivers a fair offer. For more information, please visit. And then there's a, a link. Um, first of all, like I, I'm honestly surprised that they're able to put that in an email signature at the company that they're about to go on strike with. Like you think somebody <laughs> would have filtered that out at some point, but you know, I've gotten in like four or five different people over the last couple of days. So that's happening. Um, today, as we record, it is November 10th. Um, so by the time this airs, we'll, well, I guess we'll all know how this played out. Um, so we'll see. I, I, I honestly, like I, I'm terrible with this sort of thing. I didn't even realize there was a union over at HarperCollins. So, <laughs> yeah, I saw it on social media, you know, if they're striking, they're asking, um, for no submissions to editors, 
you know, no freelance work, holding reviews and nominations. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. Do the other publishers have unions, like Penguin Random House I don't and stuff? Think that, I don't think they do. The way I know Harper's Collins is the biggest union. I don't think they do. I think this is pretty much the only one. So, huh? That's got to have a, something to do with them being able to put that stuff in those emails and not have like they have to own some kind of leverage where they're able to do that because of the union. I would think. Well, I'm, I'm guessing if the whole company is going to walk out the door, like you know, for all we know, the person who would be screening that kind of thing is one of those people walking out the door. Oh, that's true. That's um, a good point. Yeah. Or you know, like there's three people that are going to be left, and you know, even if one of those three says, "Hey, you can't do this," you've got 200 other people that are saying, "Well, we're going to do it." And yeah, unions are a weird thing. I, I wonder how this is going to play out, though. Like, um, do the other publishers kind of follow suit? So if HarperCollins, they go on strike and, you know, they get what they want, does that mean Penguin Random House employees are going to say, well, you know, the folks over at HarperCollins got this, we need to get the same, or, you know, next Thursday, we're all going to be leaving, too. I, mm-hmm. Who knows? It's definitely not going to help the, the current publishing environment, that's for sure. But, you know, I, I get, you know, everybody's got to make a uh, make a living. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. yeah, It's just a interesting time and all these publishing houses with the mergers and blocking of mergers. Now you have a a potential strike going on. This is Mm -hmm. a, it's an interesting time (laughs) in publishing for sure. Speaking of interesting time, we were kind of going back and forth on text messages over the weekend, but I've been using um, Dolly just to create some covers um, and just fooling around with it. And I, like, I am seriously impressed. Like I typed in like one or two sentences and within 10 seconds I had a a cover that was worthy of a, you know, a a book, you know, like there are very little tweaks on it. I just added my, um, my, my name up at the top using it in my trademark version, like just slapped it all together. But like, it only took me a couple minutes. Um, you know, it's so like that to me is, is really cool. And I was listening to Joanna. She was talking about this a little bit because um, the Shutterstock, I guess, is, is now allowed or now allowing AI generated images into their, mm. you know, their, their search thing. So like it's basically going to be populated along with the stuff provided by artists and photographers and stuff like that. Um, it makes me wonder, you know, like from an API standpoint, you knowing how these things are put together, like Shutterstock really could take the text that's typed into their search box, send it directly over to one of these AI services and return results mixed in with their their existing results so they could literally <laughs> create those those images on the fly um i've got a feeling we're going to see that sooner rather than later because it's a pretty easy thing to do from a computer programming standpoint so we'll, we'll see yeah, yeah. It, that's a good point i hadn't thought about that and that's really interesting that they're doing that and yeah you texted me that cover um because i had i had texted you a comment about how i saw the paperback version of the noise and at, when i was at walmart and uh, put it over Bono's book. <laughs> We're never getting Bono on the podcast after this. But <laughs> going back to our U2 joke we had uh, a couple weeks ago or whatever. Um, but uh, but yeah, so uh, but, and you sent me that and I was like, man, that looks it, it looked really, really good. I was really impressed. And I've seen some other ones from friends. We've uh, JP friend of me and Christine's like he's been really doing that and stuff and. It's it's super interesting. I, yeah. I think what you're going to see happen, though, is, you know, it's not going to do away with the artist because somebody still has to sit there and type in those prompts and people are going to yeah. get, you know, some people are going to get a lot better at it than others, you know, and, and it's just, it's going to become another tool in their toolbox. Um, you know, like I was able to take my my name and, and put it on the cover, but only because I already had, you know, existing artwork for that sort of thing that another artist had created for me. Um, so I've got the various elements, but, you know, like I, I don't see all of this going away. Like, a, you know, it's not going to replace the, the human element of it. It's just going to be one more thing that they can hit to basically, you know, get a starting point, I think, on a cover. Um, I like the fact, you know, I, I, I tend to use um, 
uh, 99 designs, or that's what I was using before, you know, three, $400, they'll, you know, you get 40 or 50 different designs and you can kind of pick what you like. And, you know, I've always liked that, but mainly because you get so many different options. And a lot of times, you know, the idea that I have for a cover, I'll, I'll put that description out there and they come back with something totally out of left field that I like better. Um, you know, it's, it's rarely like the image that I you know started with that I go with. It's usually one of those, you know, off, off brand or something just different. Uh, I like the fact that this just returned those results, you know, like right away. You know, I just, I tweaked one word in my description, hit the little generate button and 10, 15 seconds later, I had a whole new set of stuff and you can pick one that is, you know, if you have one that's like remotely close to what you want, you can generate new images based on that one. Um, you know, and it was all very quick, you know, with 99 designs, you know, it's a one or two week process to kind of get to that same point because you're dealing with people who have to go back and adjust those things. So, uh, very, very cool technology for sure. Yeah. And I was playing around with the mid journey one, which it's a discord and you can watch people in real time, just creating artwork and see what they're doing and kind of steal that. But um, the part that blew my mind is that people are telling it to do it in the style of famous artists. So it was madness. So I'm like, okay, I have this idea and do it in the style of this artist that would be, you know, thousands of dollars to do your cover. And it just nails it. And I just wonder what that's going to look like for the future of, of art and, and licensing and that type of thing. Well, I, I had this conversation. I don't remember if we did this on the air. I, I know I talked to Jay about it a little bit. Um, but, you know, like my daughter right now, she's in kindergarten and like she's learning, you know, a lot of different things, you know, and she's learning those things based on existing products that are out there. So somebody's putting a book in front of her. Somebody's putting a picture in front of her. You know, this was painted by a guy named Picasso. This was painted by somebody named Dolly. Um, you know, and, and she's in art class. So go ahead and create something. And now her art is inspired by what she just saw. Um, you know, so we're, we're training these AIs basically the same way that we train people. Um, it's just that it happens a lot faster and the retention is a hundred percent. That's really the only difference between the two. So from a copyright standpoint, I think like if it eventually gets to the Supreme court, and I think it will, uh, I, I honestly, I think that's how they're going to look at it. Like we're training computers the same way we train people. So, you know, if we're not going to be able to train computers that way, we can't train people that way anymore. Um, that's not going to happen. So, you know, I, I think in the end it's going to be allowed. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. You know, yep. you're also, I mean, AI is hitting all these different things. I mean, you hear these, uh, um, like songs that people are making that sound like other artists and all that. And it's crazy, you know, like how accurate it is and stuff. So it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. But, uh, but so what do you, what do you guys been working on this week? Uh, I'm wrapping up, um, a, a the book that I've been working on for the last couple of months, I think I'll probably be done with the first draft. I'm, I'm hoping by the end of November, um, and I'm outlining the, the next one. Um, I just started watching a show on Netflix called Inside Man, which is phenomenal. Um, it's only four episodes, so it's pretty short, but like the, the writing is just incredible. Um, so if you know if anybody's looking for anything to watch, check that one out. Um, but that's pretty much it. What about you guys? I've been working on a novel, as always. There's always a novel I'm working on, pitching some ideas for new novels. Um, I just finished watching The Watcher. You know, I was going to watch something else, but that trailer sucked me in. And if anyone hasn't watched it, I think it it's worth a watch. Really interesting ending. Not sure how I feel about it, but I'm going to be thinking about it for a long time because I haven't really seen that done. Did Did you go down the rabbit hole and start researching the real family behind I it? I sure did. I was on Google <laughs> for. I went down that Google rabbit hole. It was really interesting, and you know, I kept thinking, what if The Watcher is watching this right now? <laughs> Which was like a whole meta kind of thing, but yeah, it was very interesting. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who wants to do their own yeah, Google rabbit hole. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I'm uh, my uh, um, dead wrong, which is the seventh book in my dead south series. <laughs> Deep um, south. is is with is is with my editor right now. So 
Um, and I've actually already started writing um, the next book in the series, which is also going to be the last in the series. Um, I had the outline pretty much done, and I've, or I've already drafted like five chapters of that. Um, it's called, wait for it, Dead End. Yep. Um, <laughs> last book in the series. I thought that was fitting. So, um, so I'm working on that. And uh, I guess since you guys both mentioned shows, uh, I'll go a different route and, of course, do JD's favorite thing and mention a video game. And because that's what I do in my spare time, I don't really watch TV. And uh, but I've been trudging my way through Elden Ring, which is like the hardest game I've ever played, and it's probably going to get game of the year. And it is somewhat relevant to this show because this is a game that George R. R. Martin worked on, so he actually did uh, a good chunk of the world building and stuff for the game. And the visuals and all the monsters and stuff are absolutely incredible, but it is tough as nails. But that's what uh, that's what I've been doing in my spare time, so. All right, so circling back to the, the title thing, do you have a spreadsheet somewhere with just dead this, dead that, dead whatever? I like, do, and here's where it got funny. So after about three or four books, I, I realized that the that all my titles so far had been dead and then another one-syllable word. So I wanted to like have, I, I had one title that was going to be like two or three syllables. And I was like, well, crap, like, and I knew, I knew from the beginning the last book was going to be called Dead End. So um, I was like, I can't get away from that now. So then I started coming up with, like, I have now have to think about just one-syllable words that can go with it because I'm just weird like that, and it looks better on the cover and all that stuff. Um, but, yeah, I have, a, I have a, an Apple note that just has a line of just, like, dead things. <laughs> <laughs> like, different dead things, I guess. I- I've got the same thing for my 4MK series because it's the fourth monkey, the fifth to die, the sixth wicked child. I've got a crazy long spreadsheet that's got the first, the second, the third, the sixth, the you know, seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth, just adding, going on and on and on. But yeah, you, the seventh you get those angel, like, the seventh plague will be the next one. <laughs> you know, I got to write that down. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Add it Before to the list. someone else, you better go trademark it. <laughs> I don't know if you could actually trademark that, but probably not. Yeah. But, uh, All right. So um, with all that out of the way, of course, we want to give a shout out to our friends over at Kobo Writing Life. And uh, of course, we we love Tara and her team over there and all the awesome stuff they're doing for authors. So if you're publishing your books and you're doing it wide, uh, you've got to publish direct through Kobo. When you do that, um, which you can do without any exclusivity agreements, um, you get access to uh, all their monthly promos, um, you can publish in. They have tons of countries they publish in, um, and their dashboard is amazing. So get started today at KoboWritingLife.com. And with that out of the way, J.D., who we got up today? This week we've got Jennifer Given, her latest psychological thriller. It's called River Woman, River Demon, and it released in October. So here she is, Jennifer Given. Okay, so you have a new book. River Woman, River Demon, and it's a witchy thriller with a splash of magic, and it starts with a woman howling in the water. Can you tell us a bit more about about the book? Yeah, absolutely, and I love the way you introduced it. Thank you. So River Woman, River Demon, it follows the journey of Eva, the protagonist, who is married to Jericho Moon, and Eva Santiago is an indigenous and Latina, she's a Mexican-American woman, and her mother was a bruja, which means that she was a witchy woman. She was a, we could say a witch, we could say a curandera, healer, 
Um, but she died giving birth to Eva. And so uh, Eva doesn't have that connection to her ancestral magic and really therefore her ancestral power. But when she meets Jericho Moon and uh, when she's a young adult, he is a professor of hoodoo and folk magic. Um, and eventually they fall in love and get married and move to um, New Mexico, where he's a professor at the University of New Mexico. So that's kind of her background. And it's going to follow her journey of um, like, that's the that's the magical side of it. But then what's happening over on the thriller side is that when she was a teenager, her best friend drowned and she was accused of the murder. And so uh, one night she's home with her kids and uh, her husband, Jericho, is supposed to be at the uh, his occult shop uh, getting ready for Samhain, Halloween, Dia de los Muertos, and she's home with them. And then she hears that howling from the water and she runs down to the river, the Rio Grande, which runs right beside their house in Los Lunas, New Mexico, outside of Albuquerque. And what she finds there is Jericho holding their best friend, Cecilia, who also works with him at the occult shop and is a magical friend of theirs, dead in his arms. And it is eerily similar to what happened when she was a teenager. And so the, the book really begins from there. It's really about her trusting her magic and trusting herself, but uh, it's going to take them, the whole family, through some dark shadow lands to get to that point. Yeah. And I want to touch on all of those things that you just mentioned, starting with uh, culture. So the themes of roots comes up often in this book. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how your cultures infuse your storytelling? Absolutely. So I myself am Latina and Indigenous. Um, my husband is Black and he uh, came, we, we both came to our own marriage with a sense of uh, ancestral magic within us. And so Jericho and Eva are loosely based on my husband and I. And so therefore the book is is very personal to me in many ways. And the culture is mine, is my family's, and is very personal to me uh, as well. And it was exciting for me to be able to write about it in a way that felt organic and real um, while, you know, while infusing this murder mystery with all of these elements. And so uh, it was very much a way for me to tap into my own sense of what brujería and curanderismo are in my life, both on a spiritual level uh, and a metaphorical level, as well as a really tangible physical level. And so many of the spells and rituals that Eva undertakes within the novel, um, with the exception of some of the darker, um, you know, their, their protective magic, their protective spells, but some of them are a little bit darker than I actually ever get into um, just because, you know, that I try to personally, I try to stay uh, very much in light work um, and not open myself up to some of the darker elements only because like Eva, I also struggle with mental illness and like Eva um, with depression. And so I try very hard to keep myself in the light, <laughs> but otherwise uh, many of the spells and rituals that that Eva um, undertakes within the novel, I myself have practiced in my own life and my own spiritual path. Um, and so it was important to me that I include those. And then there's other elements of culture, of course, um, my Mexican-American Chicana roots um, 
So she references, uh, for instance, um, Our Lady of the Dead, which is um, La Muerte. And so that is a goddess and, uh, I'm sorry, that is a goddess who represents for her uh, a kind of a chingona, which is a badass, uh, powerful woman who also, you know, is very much an outcast, marginalized and that's something that was also important for me to include in the novel, the experience of people of color being marginalized. And that's something that my family has experienced. Um, and so quite a bit of what happens to Jericho, for instance, in the novel and the way that um, Eva feels as a Latina woman married to a black man, that she is, you know, she has light skin privilege and, uh, you know, in, in many ways, um, is complicit with a system that marginalizes and, um, you know, that it, in some ways um, is a, like is violent against black, uh, the black community. She's complicit in that. And so I think a lot of the guilt that she goes through um, is, is in, within the novel is, you know, an aspect of what we as allies, uh, you know, need to uh, reckon ourselves, you know. Um, and so I wanted to include what my family has experienced, um, but also there's elements of, for instance, the food and the music and the altars. And so there's quite a bit of Mexican food and like the, the recipes for that. You know, a lot of them are either family recipes or things that we have created together in my home. So yeah, absolutely. Culture is infused throughout. Um, that was a, a major aspect of the novel for me. And I was excited to have a place to explore that. Yeah. And um, now that you said that that was, you know, deeply personal and it did feel like a deeply personal novel and, in, in, you know, the culture and the family and uh, the societal issues. Um, I do want to read this quote. My husband is awaiting his murder trial. The lawyer has returned my call and the dead mistress is out for revenge, but we still need clean sheets. And as a mother, I just totally related to that. Um, <laughs> how do you, do you think being a mother enriches your writing and how do you pull from that experience? Oh, that's such a great question. And I see myself as a mother writer. I mean, that is primarily like what I call myself and what my writing process really has had to be because I started writing in earnest. Like I've been writing since I was a child, but really writing in earnest where I was focusing on my craft since my son was born in, and so I was 23. And so I really mark my writing career by my children. So like, I know, okay, he's 15. So I've been writing and publishing and, you know, really giving this my, you know, my best since, uh, he, you know, since he was born, so 15 years. And that means that everything that I've published has come out since I've been a mother. So I really can't extricate myself from the mothering process. Like there is no writer gen and mother gen and then just gen gen. It's like, <laughs> it's all just interwoven, right? And so I'm often asked like, why do I write about motherhood so often? And it's like, well, it's woven into the fabric of who I am. Um, so partly there's just that, you know, and I, I really don't even see a separation and, and, and I think that might change, you know, as my kids grow up and, and become adults. And, um, I think that my novels have, and my, 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 my poetry as well, all of my writing has changed and grown 
with each stage of my children's lives and then the way that I mother them. And then that shows up differently on the page. And so, you know, just in terms of like having more time, for instance, or like when they were home as babies, I used to have to write uh, while they were sleeping or something like that, you know, and um, now that they're in school, like it was different during the pandemic. I kind of went back to like all of my mothering infants, <laughs> even though my children are tweens and teens, but it's like, because I was homeschooling them too. So actually when I was writing this novel, I was homeschooling them during the pandemic. And so it was very much just those like snippets of time that, that I could pull away and, you know, have them focusing on schoolwork or something like that, or playing together. Um, and then I would be able to write this novel. So um, Eva's practice of mothering uh, parallels mine in some ways. I would say that she's going through, you know, a serious depression that is because of PTSD. These, you know, the ghosts are literally haunting her from her past and they have an important message for her that she needs to heed, uh, but she misunderstands. And, you know, and I feel like that in many ways is my own journey just in terms of like so finding my own self-worth, finding my own sense of identity, because like, like I said, there is no Jen, Jen, <laughs> you know, it's just like mother writer, Jen. And sometimes that can be really difficult, especially as a Latino woman. Um, you know, I have, I, I have chronic illness as well. And so um, I often have brain fog and can't retrieve, you know, memories and words and just, and as a writer, you know, that can be so frustrating. Um, and I think the the stress and the um, sleeplessness of being a mom, you know, especially during pandemic and post pandemic um, has added to all of that. So I really wanted Eva to come through as a, a very capable and loving mother who is really just going through a hard time and needs mm -hmm. support. And that was my goal with her. And it was a lot of fun, though, to be able to take some of um, the aspects of the psychological thriller with the unreliable narrator and literally being haunted. And so take some of what haunts me as a mother in a society that really doesn't support mothers. You know, um, when we talk about mother mothering through the pandemic and mothering in this capitalist society. And, you know, I've been an adjunct for pretty much the past 15 years. And, um, and it's difficult, you know, it's very, very difficult mothering also sometimes through poverty. And, um, and so I wanted to be able to express all of that. And I felt like this container of the psychological thriller with this unreliable narrator was a lot of fun because I could give her the emotions that I was dealing with and amplify them with the, with the genres of magical realism, psychological thriller, and some elements of horror in there as well. And so really, I was hoping um, that that her mothering, her experience of being a mom through this harrowing time would become an apt metaphor, uh, you know, and that other mothers would be able to relate to her and that those who were not mothers might feel more empathy for yeah. her and her situation. Yeah. And that was one of the things that I really appreciated most about the novel is how you can't separate being a mother from all the stress you have to carry. And it was so exactly. interwoven. And I, I just, um, as a mother, totally related to it. And just, I was like, that was really well done. I, you can't just set the kids aside and forget about them for five chapters, right? They're there all the time. Exactly. The laundry needs to be done. So I just thought that was brilliant. Yeah. And I think part of it too was also realizing when you do have help, you know, and that was something that 
I think, um, was a lesson that I was learning as well, you know, because sometimes it feels like because you can do it all and you've had to do it all and you've just gotten used to doing it all, mm-hmm. <laughs> you get stuck in that routine. And so uh, Eva's sister, who's like basically her mother because she raised her um, since her own mother died, Alba comes and helps them, but, but Eva's very resistant. And I was hoping to show that, you know, society expects so much of mothers that it's sometimes very difficult to relinquish any kind of control because not because you don't want help or need help, but because there's this sense of like our, our self-worth oftentimes is like told to us. Like if you can be this perfect woman, this perfect mother, like obviously we can't, but there's this sense of like, you should be able to do it all because society expects you to do it all. Mm -hmm. And so it can be hard to relinquish any of that control because then it means it might diminish your own self-worth, like your own worth, essentially. Yeah. You know, it's not true, but it's just some, it's an emotion that I grapple with. And I've, I've, you know, talked to many other women who grapple with this kind of situation where it's like, oh, you're just so used to holding on to everything. And if you let something go, it feels like everything's going to fall. <laughs> yeah. And it, I, I appreciate that you said that because we get so much societal pressure, right? To be able to do everything individually. And then if you're reaching out for help or for community, it's seen as weakness, which is just a whole other podcast. So I'm just going to move Exactly. On it is a whole other podcast, <laughs> but it is something that I was hoping to show within the novel that part yeah. of her journey is to trust and reach out to her community. And, and really, you know, because there is a snake among her, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like figuring out who is that snake among her because she's been thinking that it's herself. essentially. So who is it? So yes, we want to weed out, you know, anybody who's not truly supporting us and get them out of our inner circle. But then, you know, that community is here to support us. And so that was, that was another parallel to Eva's journey that I myself as a writer have been learning. Yeah. Yeah. And it was wonderful. And I love that she found her strength in being able to ask for help and in other women. And it was just such a powerful message. Thank you. So you're welcome. I want to ask more. You talked a bit about uh, Eva being, you know, an unreliable narrator. And she says memory is a choice. And that comes up often in this novel as well. Uh, She's unreliable because of past trauma and the resulting PTSD. How do you think writers can use that to their advantage and do that well? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a great question. So just in terms of the unreliable narrator. Yeah. I really liked how, how you did it with memory was a choice and, you know, you, is she unreliable or, you know, are these things that happened or really didn't? And how did you use that to just hold the tension and make it so intriguing? Yeah. So I knew from the very beginning, so I'm trying to see if I can kind of um, work backward here and um, explain the process. So I knew from the beginning that I knew what the plot was. And so I knew who had really done what. So there was like, that always has to be at the forefront for me um, to know what the protagonist doesn't necessarily know. And so that I can include the clues within that, because I feel like in other attempts at writing, you know, I've an unreliable narrator that haven't been successful. I didn't always know what was going on. And so it became so blurry to me that the writing attempt failed. And so I wanted to preface like the the reliability of your narrator with the idea that the writer needs to know what's actually happening 
right? And then you can play with your protagonist and what they know and what they don't know and when they receive that information and what they do with it. And so I also use as a guide uh, Lisa Crone's book and that C-R-O-N, um, Story Genius, which mm-hmm. I love. And so she talks about this third rail. So there's there's the plot and there's the characterization. And then you've got this third rail, which is the character's backstory that makes them care or makes the, the plot concern them some in some crucial way. Like they have to have high stakes in this plot. So that is what I went back when I started this novel all over again, because I had drafted um, one version about a year before I started this version that ended up the actual novel. And so it was very blurry in that first uh, version. And I was really just getting voice down. And I think that's where, you know, she came from. And that's where Eva really um, arose. And so I was grateful for what became the compost pile, essentially, um, of this first, the first draft. But then when I went back, I had to really think, okay, what is her backstory? What are her stakes? And that's where her previous trauma arose, you know, in terms of paralleling the trauma that's happening, or, you know, the, the main plot that's happening in the present time. And so that third rail for me was connecting, like, what does she believe about what happened in her past? And what does she believe is happening in the present? And where are the places that I can merge those? You know, and then with PTSD um, and, and really with any trauma, with any mental illness, with any reaction to, you know, um, a difficult or harrowing situation, like we're going to have potentially gaps in our memory or places that are extremely highlighted and places that become obsessive. And so playing with that in terms of release of information was so much fun so that I could give her blackouts, you know, because that was a reaction to what trauma she suffered. But then also during these blackouts, having her relive information that was wrong information, but it was her experience. Like she just didn't have the full picture. And so I think that, and then having that arise at crucial moments of the present murder mystery, right? That was so much fun to weave that in. So, but again, I had to know exactly what was happening so that those details that trigger her memories and might trigger false memories, I had to know, you know, when those were coming in and and how, because you want to plant those little clues, those little red herrings, all throughout the novel so that by the end, right, the reader's like, oh, and I've had so many readers say to me, like, I didn't know how all of that, you know, everything you introduced in the beginning was going to come together. It just, and then by the end, I, you know, I was so pleasantly surprised that everything came together. And I was like, yes, <laughs> because I orchestrated it that way. And I really had to do that planning ahead of time. But then once I had, I feel like I had the whole skeleton then I could just hang all of these like juicy, lyrical, lush memories and, you know, and and red herrings all over the place. But it's because I had that structure in place ahead of time. And Story Genius was one fabulous tool that helped me do that. I read books on plot all the time, (laughs) you know, books on on how to write the thing. Um, I've, I've read like, I don't know, 20 books on plot at this point because I really had to teach myself how to do that. I come from a poetry background. I have my MFA in poetry. 
And so I can write for, you know, years on end about <laughs> the details, um, you know, what's, what people are thinking and feeling and eating and watching and, you know, what's going on around them and what the animals are doing. I'll go on and on. But to really get in there and know what's going to happen and when in order to craft a page turner, I had to teach myself that. And so I think that River Woman, River Demon exemplifies like, okay, I've really taught myself how to do it. <laughs> nice. So you compiled a pretty detailed backstory. And then did you do like kind of a traditional outline as well? Or how did you outline all those plot points and red herrings? Or did you go back yeah. and put stuff in? <laughs> yeah, no, I made an outline. Um, yeah. When I hear traditional, I'm like, I don't know if it was traditional. Oh, yeah, I guess, you know, it my... varies. Depend what <laughs> it varies, people do yeah. different things. Yeah, exactly. I did make an outline. It was within my journal, which is why I was like, is it traditional? But I know I've seen a lot of writers that that just jot notes down. And I think it was written sideways in my journal, but I did the three act structure. Mm -hmm. So that was and then I had like plot points for each of them. And then I went through and made a scene plan. And then, yes, of course, when I revised it, I went back in and had to add scenes that I had you know, necessarily forgotten um, in that first because I was so concerned with okay, making sure the plot fits together. And it did, but that you know, there were scenes that would help a reader to flow better from plot point to plot point. Um, and then I think I went in and added one or two red herrings just to make it twistier, you know, um, as I was going through revision. But yeah, I did the three act structure and I, I tend to follow the hero's journey as yeah. well, um, which I know uh, has been criticized and rightly so for potentially being um, a bit sexist or misogynistic in that like it doesn't, it hasn't tended to include uh, women's journeys. And I feel like, I hope that my novel, you know, exemplified how the hero's journey as, as a woman, right. And what it mm -hmm. means to be a mother, right. And a mother's journey yeah. through this, but um that it's that the hero's journey is flexible enough to um to be a, a woman's journey as well one thing though that I have found you know a little bit disheartening and I hope that that um you know readers will uh, examine their own maybe preconceived notions as they're reading this book and all of my books but I have heard a few times now that Eva is an unlikable character uh, and, and that, you know, she's she's really being judged for not being, a, you know, supposedly good enough mom and making decisions that are not in her children's best interest. But I mean, that was literally the point of the mm -hmm. novel. <laughs> so I would hope that people would understand, like when I was going into the hero's journey, like this was her dark night of the soul. This was her doing battle with the Duende and the shadow, and part of that is, yes, her own demons, part of that are the cultural and social demons, um, and, you know, also she's human, and in any given crisis, like, humans are going to make mistakes, that's, exactly. that's what is so endearing about humans, <laughs> like, we hope that we're gonna turn course and, and make the right choices in the end, you know. Yeah. yeah, and mothering is messy, it's not always perfect, but yeah, for me, um, you know, thinking back on it now that you say that it did start off as a hero's journey, but in the end, she seemed to be more on a heroine's journey to boy yes. borrow a uh, Gail Carriger's terminology where yes. she's found her strength and community and other people. So, you know, I, I thought it was beautiful. I didn't find her unlikable at all. I found her <laughs> <Thank you>. realistic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Oh, I have so many other questions I want to ask, but I think I'm going to wrap it up uh, with one more as we come to a close. I hope it's a fun question. What are you most excited about in the near future? That's such a great question. The possibilities feel endless at this point, I think, which is what is most exciting. I have so many novels in mind. Uh, I'm working on another one right now. It's called Salt Bones. And I moved to San Diego where my kids are going to an art school here. And my husband is a travel nurse. And so we're here for, uh, you know, who knows how long, but we're here now. And I'm back just a few hours away from where I grew up in the Imperial Valley, which is on the Mexicali border, right beside the Salton Sea, which is what I'm writing about. And the Salton Sea right now is going through an ecological crisis that many people across the country are not even aware, first of all, that it exists. And second of all, that it's drying up and it's toxic and it's really poisoning the air um, in the Imperial Valley where much of the nation's produce is grown. Mm. And so it's actually a, a huge deal, but people don't realize it. And so it's it's an issue near and dear to my heart. And I'm writing a murder mystery, believe mm-hmm. it or not, uh, mm-hmm. set down in the Imperial Valley. And so one of my goals as with River Woman, River Demon is to show the culture, show the, the larger, higher stakes, um, you know, on an individual level, but also on a communal level and a societal level. And so I hope that I'm doing that while also really just creating a fun page turner. So people are like learning about something, but <laughs> it's almost like through osmosis. They don't know they're learning because it's just so fun and intriguing to turn the pages. And so that's what I'm hoping to do. Um, you know, like I said, most people don't really know about this issue. So I figure why not teach them through an intriguing, magical, real murder mystery? You know, so that's a lot of fun to write, um, even though, you know, it's a it's a heavy topic, but um, it's always fun for me to blend together as many genres and issues <laughs> as I can, you know, um, and and kind of like um, put them into my alchemical pot and stir them and see what happens. So that's been a lot of fun. But I just have tons of other projects that I'm thinking about and working on. I have a middle grade novel that my 12 year old daughter and I are completely revising to get to our agent soon. And that's kind of a indigenous girl powered Percy Jackson, if you will. So it's like gods and monsters. And I'm very excited about that one. Um, and I, I feel like the sky's the limit right now. And so I'm just asking my body, you know, with, through chronic illness to keep up with me because all of these stories are still burning inside of me and I don't see an end in sight. So um, I'm so grateful for, you know, that, that people are reading and uh, reading River Woman, River Demon, and that it's resonating with them. And I hope that keeps opening doors for me to keep telling these stories that I care so deeply about. All right. So Jennifer Given, interesting magical twist on a thriller, including family recipes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of writers just, um, you know, there's two ways to kind of go down that witchcraft or just, you know, paranormal, all the, you know, that, that rabbit hole, like if you decide you want to write that and there's one where you just kind of dive in and it's just, it's part of that world, you know, sort of like a Dresden files kind of thing. Like you just, you write it as if it's all accepted. Um, and it's just, you know, that's the way it is. And, and the other way, you know, which is more, I guess, closer to what she was doing or what I would have to do is you have to treat it, you know, pretty much like real life. Um, you know, so if you want to introduce a witch into a thriller, 
where you know, your characters have to react as if that were happening, you know, in, in real life, you know, so if somebody were to, you know, want, you know, tell you your neighbor is a witch, you know, like you just, you don't believe it. The characters shouldn't believe it, but like then maybe this happens and it, you know, swings them a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, and, you know, we talk about King all the time. He's, he's phenomenal at this sort of thing. You know, if you read The Outsider, you know, like that's a crazy monster he's got going on in there. Um, but the characters don't believe it's real. Um, you know, the reader doesn't believe it's real, but then, you know, he drops this little hint and he's, you know, he's basically starts to sway the characters. And then by doing that, he sways the reader. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's really difficult thing to do, especially with the thriller. Um, and I run into it quite a bit writing with Patterson because he brings me in, like anytime he gets an idea for something scary, something horror related, he's like, Hey, JD, do you want to do this? Um, the problem that I have with that is, you know, like his fans don't expect it. They're looking for another serial killer, you know, straight up, this is going to happen in the real world. So we have to kind of find a way to, to do that. Um, so I'm constantly running into that wall, trying to figure out how to explain, you know, paranormal psychology, you know, that, that type of thing in a, in a, you know, straight up thriller. So that, that resonated with me for sure. Yeah. It's tough to do. Um, I, I won't, I won't say the name of the book, but like I res- recently read a book, um, that was a thriller that introduced a supernatural element, like in the last act. <laughs> and it was very jarring at that point because it was kind of like, I don't know. It was just weird. Like, cause I didn't, I didn't expect it. It ended up being really good at the end, but initially it was really jarring. And I was like, where, where is this going? So, um, you know, I could definitely see when you're not really writing speculative fiction, like if you're writing thrillers, there are certain expectations. And obviously if you set them from the onset, you're going to be in pretty good shape. Um, but I can definitely see how that'd be kind of difficult to do. Yeah. And I like I, how she talked about including things from her real life that haunted her and just making them yeah. literal. So that was pretty cool. Well, and she was into witchcraft herself, you know, so like that, that all adds a lot of authenticity to it. Um, what about the, the parenting influence? That, yeah. I know we're all parents, right? At this point, mm-hmm. so like, has that influenced your writing or changed it in some way or another? It's like since becoming a parent? A- absolutely. Um, I, I actually, <clears throat> one thing that she said that I can totally relate to is I can easily line up my writing career with when my daughter was born because um, I started writing my first book that I started writing empty bodies like three months after Haley was born, I think. Um, so it, it lined up almost exactly the same. So like I can, I can look at that um, like from what she's saying and, and I, yeah, I mean for me um, you know, I can even tell you now, like with what I'm working on and, and the project I'm working on right now, like um, because there's a kid character in my, in my, in, in my dead South series. And, um, without going into too much, like the parents are not together and stuff. And, um, you know, this year I've been going through a divorce and so, um, in my personal life and, um, it's definitely impacting how I'm writing, like being a single dad and stuff now and seeing what that's like, um, is absolutely impacting my writing. Um, and, and, and it's giving me a, a very different perspective, um, which I, I do want to say like that was I don't want to move away from the parenting thing because I want Christine to chime on that, too. But like one thing this interview really did for me, what really showed was just diversity, not only in cultures, but also in experience. Um, just Jennifer was very open, um, which I really appreciate about all different sorts of things from parenting to, um, you know, her culture and uh, her, you know, kind of her family history and stuff to her. She t- she mentioned mental illness and some of the struggles she goes through with that. Um, and it, it was very open. And um, also, I guess why I'm saying that too, I also want to commend you, Christine, because I think that 
this uh, this really showed too. It's it's nice to have a different voice interviewing for some of these because you and her had a conversation. I don't think she would have had with Jay, which kind of brought Probably a different none. perspective. You know, with two mothers talking and all that. So uh, I just wanted to call that out too because that was pretty awesome. Yeah, and obviously I really related to her book being a mom, and I didn't start writing until after my son was born because he was the reason I started writing because I was at home for three months and I was bored, and I don't do well without cognitive stimulation like there's only so much laundry and daytime tv you can do I'm like I can write a novel but um <laughs> yeah I really related to that because you know we've talked about it that um I had some struggles early on my son's husband passed when he was very young and I did the single mom thing for a while so really the book felt really real to me and I just really appreciate it you know she just didn't set the kids aside they were just really integral to that plot and she was always thinking about them and where they were and it, it just felt like real life and you know it was a great conversation to have and I really appreciate the authenticity that she brought to that thriller from a mother's perspective or you know any parent for me personally like I, I've been writing kids forever um, especially with doing the, the book doctor ghostwriter thing um, but until I had a daughter like it was all pulled from you know popular culture you know so if I had a book that I was working on that had a four-year-old girl in it I would you know do a google search movies with four-year-old girl books with four-year-old girl um, things like that and like that's basically how my characters came together um, you know now it's like it's a whole different world just because you've got like you know this insight you know that you're around that child all the time you see every stage of development um, there's so many little quirky things that I never would have picked up on before doing that. Um, I, I've read tons of fun stories. About, I mean, one of my favorite is, uh, st stories about this is from King. Um, again, um, when he was writing Gerald's game, he actually handcuffed Joe, his son, to the to a bed and tried to get, you know, basically said, Joe, can you flip over the back? You know, like you're handcuffed in the bed. See if you can get over the back side of it and push it away from the wall and get it to the other side of the room. Um, and his wife, I guess, walked in at some point while they were trying to do this. Um, but yeah, you know, like that, that's the life of a writer with a with a kid right you know like you I'm, I'm looking at my daughter in two different ways you know like she's this amazing little person that's just growing up every day but at the same time I'm like farming her for knowledge you know like oh that's how you would do it there's also something about being a girl dad like that is a totally different thing than um you know having a son if you're a man or like you know and I'm, I know with women there's you know it, it is it's very different you know um so uh, that definitely impacts my writing as well as like as being a girl dad knowing um w what that is like as well so yeah um, but i do definitely think it gives you like so much insight into children and from a developmental perspective that i didn't have before that for sure absolutely yeah yeah a another thing she mentioned um that i thought was really interesting was um have you guys ever used unreliable narrators in your books i i have yeah for sure. Yeah. I write it's, an ADHD uh, character, so he's everywhere. Oh, know? nice. Yeah. It's, yeah. I love that. Um, uh, I, I recently read a book that had an un unreliable narrator and it was like, I don't know, I've never done it as a writer. It's definitely something I want to do, but it feels like, um, I, I guess with the right planning and as long as you know where the story's going, you can definitely, like, it seems like it'd be super fun to to to, to use, but it also seems like it could be um, kind of tricky in a way. Yeah. And I, um, she talked about story genius, which I read years ago, like, but I, I probably forget most of it cause it's not the plotting tool that I usually use, but talking about that third rail and really putting up the character's wants or desires against a misbelief and how you can use that to just push and pull 
a character down a path or away from a path. And I thought it was really interesting to hear about how she did that deep dive before she did the plotting. I think one of my favorite books with an unreliable narrator has got to be Fight Club. Oh, oh sure. yeah, it, it, sure. It's done so, it's so well. I think that's the standard yeah, to me. Yeah, that's it, the standard. It, it really is. I mean, because I, I flipped it, you know, when that twist finally hits you, you know, like I went back and reread it and I was like, and he seeded it throughout the entire book. Like yep. he, he knew it was coming or at least, it, you know, at least on the rewrites, he fixed it and made it seem that way. But, you know, it starts from that very first page. But as a reader, you've got no clue until you hit that twist. And then all of it's there, all those breadcrumbs, everything makes perfect sense. And it was in front of you the whole time. But, you know, you just you completely miss it. So that that's one of my my all time favorites. And in Coast to Coast Murders with Patterson, we, we had an unreliable narrator um, and we wrote it in first person, which was extra tricky to do. Um, um, but it, it's fun, you know, it's challenging as an, an author to try and do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fight Club, one of those rare instances where the movie is just as good as the book, in my yeah. opinion, yeah. at least. And it was structured a bit differently, too, which I thought would, was interesting yeah. that, you know, they changed it to be a little more traditional structure at the end. And the book was so short. It's only, what, 40, 45,000 words or something? Yeah, it's so, not a very long book. Yeah. yeah. No, another interesting thing she talked about, you mentioned story genius. Well, she also talked about the hero's journey mm-hmm. um, and kind of how uh, the hero's journey typically is is more of a masculine perspective. And, and, and um, which I thought was really I thought was really interesting um, that, you know, that she she kind of tried to she really tackled that head on and and, and you know, used use the, the, the hero's journey from more of a feminine perspective from what it sounded like. Um, and also I want to call attention to, um, to, uh, the Virgin's promise. If no one's read that book, um, the Virgin's promise is really kind of the hero's journey, but from a feminine perspective, um, it takes on more of a, um, emotionally intelligent internal journey than the hero's journey, which is more, um, an outward perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so I would definitely recommend people checking out The Virgin's Promise as well. Yeah, and The Virgin's Promise is a little bit more societal focus, like how does it society is, yeah. change in response to her. Um, I would also recommend Gail Carriger's book, The Heroine's Journey, because mm, it, okay. it, it is more about um, contrasting how the hero's journey finds strength in individual and like they're, they're strongest when they're on their own and weakest with other people. But The Heroine's Journey looks at finding strength in community and connecting with other people, so it kind of flips it on its head. Oh, that's definitely cool. worth the read. I haven't read that. Excellent book. Check that out. Yeah. Nice. All right. So yeah, that was an awesome interview with Jennifer, and we definitely appreciate her coming on. And like I said, Christine, um, <clears throat> you did a knockout job. And uh, like you. I said, had a brought a different perspective to that conversation that I think we would have got with uh, old Crypto J wherever Perfect. he's at. Yeah, so. you can just fire <laughs> Jay now. I'm good. I'll just take over. Bye, Jay. <laughs> You did mention NFTs once in the whole interview. Yeah, I I was really impressed. (laughs) (laughs) All right, JD, who we got up next week? Oh, this this one's a really cool interview. It's a guy named Alex Cody Foster. Um, so if you've got Netflix, between now and next week, I'm going to give you some homework. Jump on there and, and watch the John McAfee story. It's called Running with the Devil. Um, so Alex Cody Foster was a ghostwriter who was brought in by John McAfee to actually tell his life story. Um, and yeah, you know, when you watch the, the Netflix thing, like John McAfee's story is insane. Um, and he actually he dies in prison at, at, you know, this is a real life thing. I mean, not too long ago, just a few years back. 
Um, so to write that up is one thing, but like Alex's personal story is just as crazy, um, which he's actually written up and is coming out soon. Um, Jay actually did this interview and he, he shot me a text after he finished it. He's like, I think this might be our craziest, coolest, best interview we have ever done. Um, and, and honestly, I think it, I think he might be right. So you don't want to miss this one. Alex Cody Foster. Awesome. We'll be looking forward to that. So if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.